you have a Bible this morning, let's open up to John chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 19. And if you are visiting with us for the first time this morning, we have spent over 15 months just going verse by verse by verse by verse through John's gospel account. And we are kind of closing in on the end of our study here. We're looking at what has happened after the resurrection of Christ that we looked at last week on Easter Sunday. And so this morning we're going to be in John chapter 20 starting in verse 19. Again, if you have no idea where John is, please feel free to use the table of contents. Look it up. You're going to be in kind of the, the second half of your Bible. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you'll arrive at John. Look for the big number 20. That's the chapter that we're going to be in. And then look for the little number 19. That's the verse that we're going to be in. If you're unfamiliar with how the Bible is laid out, would love for you to have a copy of God's Word there in front of you. Remember, the gospel accounts say, someone is here right now. And so we've been looking at the person and work of the ministry of Christ this morning. And so as you're opening up there, a recent question went around in kind of my nerdy PCA corner of Facebook. And, uh, and to get ideas and answers, somebody posed a question. And the question was this, what is the best opening line of a book that is not the Bible? So you think about the, the corpus of literature out there, excluding the Bible. What is the best opening line to any book that's out there? My default answer has always been the opening line of C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which I think is just a fantastic opening of a book. It starts this way. There once was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. What a great opening line. They're like, that guy's name was so bad. That he almost deserved it. You go and read that book, Eustace, uh, he starts off just rotten. And, and anytime that question, a question like this gets asked, it's always fun to kind of hear the responses. And you might think of a, a response that you have, one that, a book that you love, and a kind of an opening line, as you know, the kind of the opening salvo of any poem or work of literature or anything like that kind of sets the stage and you'll ask any writer and they really agonize over that first sentence. And you, you can probably think of a favorite line that you may have, but typically when that question gets asked, the runaway favorite is always the opening line to Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. And you may remember that line, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. That one typically is the runaway favorite in those kind of questions. And what it reminds us of, that, that line, what it reminds us of is that two things can be true with two different groups of people at the same time. So for this group of people, it was the best of times. For this group of people, it was the worst of times. And those two things kind of coexisted at the same amount of time, the same place in time. And so as I was thinking about that, it's an example, another example is let's say someone writes a song with a broken heart. So in that point in time, they are pouring their heart out onto the page. And for them, it's the worst of times. But yet that song becomes someone else's favorite dance party song. You know, it's the worst of times for the one who wrote it, but it's the best of times who loves the beat that that song has, and it becomes their favorite song. So basically every Taylor Swift pop song that's ever written, you know, it's the, it's the worst of times, but also the best of times for those who enjoy her music. Now, two weeks ago, when we think about what's going on in John's gospel. Two weeks ago, we actually saw the worst of times with the, the death and the burial of Jesus Christ in the tomb. And again, we have reiterated what has been the historic confession of the church that Jesus really died. There was no question about it. 
The Romans were trained killers. They knew exactly what they were doing. Jesus was not the first person who was ever crucified. So when they came and they took his body down, it was absolutely apparent to literally everyone that this man named Jesus was dead. And they put him in the ground. And so he rested there. And it was the worst of times. As you think about the the disciples and the followers of Christ going, what do we do now? Oh, but last week, we looked at the best of times, did we not? where we considered the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and we saw Mary's grief turn to joy when Jesus spoke her name. Remember, she says, Mary. And she knew that Jesus had returned. And she announced, I've seen the Lord, and then excitedly told others about the resurrection. And we typically don't think about the ongoing implications of the resurrection in our daily lives. We typically kind of silo it off into kind of this like future hope that... Yes, we have this because Jesus has been raised from the dead, so we too one day, someday will also be raised from the dead and united with him in a resurrection like his. And we typically kind of silo it off into a future hope, which it absolutely is. That absolutely is true. But it still matters in the here and now, especially when life gets hard. And you ever wondered about that? How does the resurrection of Christ meet you when life gets hard? How does it matter in those moments? And so this morning, on the exact same day, of what we talked about last week, the scene shifts to a different location, and once again it becomes the worst of times. As the disciples, the the other disciples of Jesus who have not heard about his resurrection are hiding in fear behind a locked door. But as we'll see when the resurrected Jesus shows up, absolutely everything changes. And so with that in our mind, let's go to the Word now. John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. So we finish this chapter. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands in his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever and ever and ever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to his word. Please pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to your word with humility, but also with grateful hearts, thankful that you have given us your word to remind us of who you are and how we are to live. 
And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would take these words and apply them to, your heart, to our hearts by the work of the Spirit as you see fit. Remind us again of reality as we are so quick to forget. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, as we consider this text this morning, it's easy to kind of identify with the, the disciples here this morning. Why? Because we are all prone to fear and doubt. All of us. We have all struggled and wrestled with fear and doubt at some point, especially in our spiritual lives. It's part of living in a fallen world. You know, we, we get afraid. We, we hear the promises of God, but it's hard to trust those promises when our lives and the world feel so broken. And so doubt and skepticism and fear and even cynicism slowly but surely starts to creep in. As we again ask the questions that the psalmists have when life gets tough, we're like, God, don't you see? Don't you care? And that little whisper of doubt comes in and we start thinking, well, maybe he doesn't see. Or maybe he doesn't care. Or is he really real? Is this Bible really true? And those fears and those doubts start creeping in. And so the big question this morning that I want us to ask when we consider what's going on in this text is, how does the resurrected Christ meet us in our fear and doubt? And we're going to see two big points. Number one, he offers peace to the fearful, and he offers an invitation to the doubting. So he offers peace to the fearful and an invitation to the doubting. How does the resurrected Christ meet us in our fear and doubt? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's look at that first point. He offers peace to the fearful. In verse 19, we are told, as our scene opens, that this scene actually takes place on the evening of the same day Jesus was resurrected, Sunday, the third day. And the disciples were huddled in what most scholars think was that same exact upper room where they had gathered before to hear Jesus' teach, final teaching. Remember that upper room discourse that basically takes John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. It's all upper room discourse. This is a favorite place where the disciples gathered and they think, okay, they must have gone back to that place. And you, did you notice that the doors were locked? And it says the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. These were the same Jewish leaders who had conspired to take Jesus down. And what they were doing was they were probably looking to wipe out the last vestiges of this rebellion and regain full control of the spiritual situation. We've seen their ruthlessness many times throughout John's gospel. We forget that Jesus and his disciples were in big trouble constantly and at odds with the religious leaders of the day. And these that were trying to control the goings-on spiritually in the, in the region. They were trying to maintain control of the religion. And what you see is these disciples, they're hiding in fear. Remember also, most of the disciples had fled when Jesus was arrested. And you can imagine the shame and guilt that they felt when Jesus was laid in the tomb. They're up there going like, we weren't there to help him. That feeling of guilt that we ran when it mattered the most. And they're all huddled in there together, and you can feel that kind of shame and guilt and doubt and fear and what's going on and what's going to happen next and what's, what's going to happen, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up. The question is, did he walk through the door? Did he miraculously unlock the door and quietly slip in? We really don't know. There's scholarship on both sides. Acts 12.10 mentions that a locked gate was miraculously opened by an angel for Peter. I kind of lean more towards that view because in this passage, the real physical body of Jesus is front and center where he says, Thomas, come and touch me. Come and, I'm here. It's me. 
I don't think Jesus was some sort of hologram here in this picture. Here's what James Hamilton Jr. said. He said, most of these disciples had last seen Jesus right before they fled as he was being arrested. And so they might have expected him to rebuke them upon his unexpected return to bodily life. Yet he bears no animosity, makes no accusations, and rehearses no failures. He loves these men, and he announces to them what his death on their behalf has accomplished for them. Peace. You can imagine these disciples huddled in fear and doubt and what's going to happen next. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And you could think in their weakest moment, they're like, he is about to absolutely drop the hammer on us because we ran. But he doesn't, does he? He speaks a word of peace to them. And I want you to think about what hope and comfort this brings to all of us who struggle with fear and shame, especially in our spiritual lives. We ask questions like this, have I done enough? We think about all the ways we've fallen short of his law, the times that we betrayed him with our thoughts and words and actions, and how we have abandoned him with pressure when pressure mounted. I mean, think about it. We do this every week in the confession of sin. We confess, Lord, we've not loved you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've confessed before. We all, like sheep, have gone astray and wandered off to our own way. You think this is the, all of us struggle with this. But because of Christ's atoning work on the cross and his resurrection, God bears no animosity towards you if you were in Christ. He makes no accusation. He rehearses none of your failures. He speaks peace to you and grace to you. And because of Christ, all of your fears and failures have been nailed to the cross. They've been placed in the tomb and they have been left there forever. You think about these moments where you're prone to to doubt and the shame that comes in. If you are in Christ, what part of that is not covered under it is finished? It's all covered. It's been finished. It's been dealt with. Don't you see how that gives us hope? See how it gives us courage? Instead of hearing, do more, straighten up, go be a good boy, go be a good girl, go figure it out, don't fail me again. You don't hear that. What do you hear? Peace. A pronouncement of peace. Did you not see in our assurance of pardoning grace, what did it say? What did we say? What did we confess here? Therefore, since we've been justified with with God, we have peace. We have peace with our Lord. It's this pronouncement of, of peace in the midst of this. And you think about the grace that's being shown here. Jesus speaks a word of grace to their hearts in the midst of their fear, but as they stand there in stunned disbelief, he offers even more. What does he offer? Not just words, but he offers his body. Did you see that in verse 20? Look at what he said. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. He says, look, see, it's me. Luke's account tells us that the disciples thought that Jesus was a spirit. And so he actually asked for them to, to give them, him something to eat. And he proved that he was physically resurrected by eating a piece of fish in front of them. And so even in the midst of that, he says, look and see. But then he also eats something in front of them to prove, no, I'm actually back. Physically, I'm right here. Again, instead of chastisement, Jesus offers grace in the midst of their doubt and their confusion. And did you notice, though what his resurrected body still had on it. Those scars. And this is huge. It seems like such a passing thing. But it's huge. It still had the scars from the cross. 
And the scars were the main way that he proved to his disciples that it was actually him. He says, look, see. Luke 24, 39, Jesus says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Why don't you think about some scars that you may have on your own body. You think about those scars, there's usually always some sort of story attached to them. There may be an accident, a sports injury, a work mishap, getting hurt while attempting something really dumb. You know, the scars all tell the story. Usually there's, I mean, I have scars on my hands and scars, and I have a story for every one of them, how I got each and every one of them. There's always a story attached. And on the surface, it seems like the scars would be a defect in Jesus' glorified body. Remember, he's raised from the dead, and he's in his glorified state. And on the surface, we think those scars, that must be a defect. But think about the story that those scars point to. It's the story of redemption. The story of redemption itself. The scars remind us that Jesus knows what it's like to walk in our shoes. That Jesus knows what it's like to experience pain and suffering and abandonment and mocking and betrayal. Those scars show that he knows what it's like to walk in our shoes. As Hebrews reminded us, he is a faithful high priest and he's able to sympathize with us in our weakness because he's been there and done that. Those scars matter. They tell the story of redemption right there as Jesus says, look and see, points to the scars. And because he chose to suffer to redeem every person that the Father had given to him in love, the scars point to the covenant love and faithfulness of the Father and the Son. Think about what those scars point to. is Christ going and willingly laying down his life to purchase, to ransom back, Every one of the sheep whom the Father had given him to redeem. And the scars point to that. And Romans 5, 8 tells us that while we were still sinners, what did Christ do? Christ died for us. And the scars tell that story. The scars point to that atoning work. Have you ever connected the dots that this is the same body that Jesus had when he ascended to the Father? We'll see that, you know, he said that he was basically after his resurrection, 40 days he was around and then he ascended. You ever connected the dots that Jesus has ascended with scars on his body? We sang about it early, did, earlier, did we not? We sang that great hymn, the, sign, the Sands of Time Are Sinking. It says, I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. I will see it. And I will know that it's him. Jesus sits on the throne of heaven right now with the scars of the cross. And instead of defects, they serve as forever reminders of signs of what he has accomplished for us. Here's what Matthew Bridges, he wrote a hymn called Crown Him with Many Crowns. And it talks about this reality. He wrote, Crown Him the Lord of Love, Behold His Sands and Side. Rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. It says those scars are actually beautiful. And they bring glory to the sun. Here's what David Mathis said. Finally, Jesus' scars as healed wounds forever tell us of our final victory in him. As the book of Revelation unfolds to us that ultimate triumph, it is our scarred Savior, the Lamb who was slain, who stands at the center of heaven and sits with his Father on the very throne of the universe, 
And we will worship Him forever with the beauty of His scars in view. They are no defect to the eyes of the redeemed, but a glory for saved sinners beyond compare. End quote. You ever thought about that? When you get to heaven, nail-scarred hands, still bearing in His body the signs of the cross, the signs of that work of redemption. You think, okay, so why should I care? Okay, and in just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. It's right there. We're going to take the Lord's Supper as it's laid out there in front of you. And as you take the Lord's Supper, remember Christ's body broken for you and the scars that now serve as an indelible seal of that pardon that was purchased at the cross. His scars will never fade. His scars will never fade. And neither will the peace of God that you now have if you trust Christ by faith. Just as his scars will never fade, if you are in Christ, your position and standing before the Father, which is of one of peace, will never fade because of the finished work of Christ. It matters. What a hope that brings. James Hamilton Jr. said, Jesus has propitiated the wrath of the Father, crushed the head of the serpent, absorbed the sting of death, and opened the gates of life. And because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the risen Lord can speak peace to those who know him. What great truths that are here. Jesus says, see my hands. Point, look at the scars. This finished work that I have done on your behalf. Look and see. But you think, okay, so what? How do we live this side of heaven in light of these great truths? Verse 21 and 22. Jesus again speaks to his disciples and then he speaks the Johannine Great Commission to them, which is our memory verse for the month. And Jesus said to them in verse 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus speaks peace to his disciples and he sends them out. And Jesus was the sent one by the Father and now he becomes the sending one as he commissions his disciples to serve as his messengers and representatives. But then Jesus gives them another sign. Not just his body, not just being sent out, but look in verse 22. He breathes on them and reminds them of the Holy Spirit that is still active and of the fuller coming of the Holy Spirit after his ascension. Remember he said, as soon as I go, there's going to be a helper who's going to come and be with you. And he can't come and be with you until I go. This promised one that's there, this fuller coming of the Spirit. Okay, long quote alert. Here we go. Quote from Ian Duguid. John has noted that the Spirit would not be given until Jesus was glorified. And Jesus told his disciples that if he did not go away, the Spirit would not come to them. Jesus was glorified at the cross, and because of the atonement Jesus made at the cross, the Spirit will take up residence in his temple in believers where no sacrifices of sin are offered because the sacrifice of Jesus has already been made. Jesus had previously spoken of the reception of the Holy Spirit, who would remain with them forever. And as he breathes on his disciples, he tells them to receive this Holy Spirit. Under the old covenant, the Holy Spirit indwelt the temple. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit came down to remain on him, and now Jesus imparts the indwelling Spirit to his disciples And at Pentecost, the Spirit's arrival will publicly announce the followers of Jesus as the people of God, end quote. Long quote, but a good one. A lot in there. Now, as we have been called out from the world, the ecclesia, 
the church, the called out ones. We have been called out through this work of effectual calling, this work of regeneration, bringing us from death to life, a stony heart being replaced by a heart of flesh, and this pronouncement of justification that if you are in Christ, you have walked into the courtroom guilty, but because of Christ, you've been justified by faith, and this new righteousness has been credited to you. All of that, all that gospel truth, we've also now been sent out by the king as his representatives to go tell others about his kingdom. This is a call, O church, to step up in courage and faith and actually go share your faith with others and trust that the Holy Spirit will work as he pleases. We go in faith and we trust God's sovereignty with the results. We think about this is a call in the Johannine Great Commission, just as we've heard in Matthew. Go out and tell others. Keep the work going. Go take these great gospel truths and go tell other people about it. And you think, oh, but I'm so weak. I'm so helpless. I don't know what I'm doing. Let me, let me, let me answer some of the common objections here. Remember, we trust the sovereignty of God. God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. God may have met you in the middle of the night. We trust that God's at work. But yet we have to obey this command, go out and go tell others as I'm sending you out. And you think, but I feel so inadequate. That's okay, the Spirit will help you. But I don't know the right words. You have a Bible. Open it, read it, and trust the Spirit's promise to work powerfully through it. You think, oh, but especially in a town like this, I grew up here. People know my past mistakes. Let me offer a word of encouragement to you. You are a trophy of God's grace. And your previous scars and mess-ups point to, the cross, to Christ who brought you back from the grave by His own scars. You are a trophy of God's grace. You are not the same person that you were. By God's grace, you've been brought from death to life. He's been changing you, that work of sanctification. You think, oh, well, people know my past mistakes. I know. But you say, look at what Jesus has done. Isn't he good? I'm different. I grew up in a small town. I get it. But you are a trophy of God's grace. You might think, but I don't know any non-Christians. I'm called to go and share the gospel with non-Christians. I don't know any non-Christians. Okay. Ask the Spirit to help you step out of your cocoon, of your comfort zone, and go make some new friends for the glory of God. Ask the Lord to bring you some new friends. And don't just go hang out with church people. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to be salt and light. We're not called to, called to live in a circle of lazy boy chairs where we just talk to each other. We're called to go. So ask the Lord to give you some non-Christian friends. And go where they are. Does that make sense? That's part of the going. You can do that right here in your own backyard. You say, well, I don't have the time or the money or whatever to go be an international missionary. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? The mission field set before you. Go. Do it. Trust the Holy Spirit. I'm not cranking on you. I'm not going to ask you to give me an attendance record. I'm saying trust the Spirit's work. Trust the sovereignty of God in all things. You can't make anybody eat. Welcome to my job. All I can do is set the table. I can't make anybody eat the bread. But I can put the bread of life in front of them and then trust Christ with the results. That's what we do. 
God can use your bumbling and your stumbling and your forgetting, and I don't really know exactly where that verse is, and that's okay. You do realize it's okay to use the search function on your Bible app? That's okay. Let the Lord take these words, these powerful words, this Bible that you have, and apply it to people's hearts. That's what I have to pray and trust every week. Lord, take these words, this feeble effort that I'm doing, and take these words and make them effectual. Go and trust the sovereignty of God. Isn't it good to know it's not left up to you to change a person's heart? The pressure is off. What that is is a call to step up in courage and faith and say, okay, I'm going to go stick my neck out here and either make a new friend or tell this friend about Jesus, and I'm going to leave the rest of it with Jesus. I'm going to leave the rest of it with the God of the universe and the Holy Spirit who can work in the middle of the night while I'm asleep. That's evangelism and the sovereignty of God. That's why we do it. Because we trust and we rest in Christ and we rest in His sovereignty. Isn't that a better way of thinking about it? And you think about, how do I share my faith with other people? How do I do this go therefore and all that stuff? Start with the fact that Jesus has changed your life. You are a trophy of God's grace. You who once were sinners and his enemies have now been made his friends and his children. Start with what God has done with you. Hey, guess what? I used to be like this, but now by God's grace I'm not. Would you like to learn how, if you struggle with anger or bitterness or fear or doubt, would you like to figure out how the Lord has helped me and encouraged me? Yes, I used to be like that in high school. That exactly was me. It totally was me. But by God's grace, I'm somebody totally different. And I've got some good news for you. What a great place to start. Let me tell you about what the Lord's done in my life. And as we proclaim the gospel message of forgiveness of sins through Christ, we do so by the power of the Holy Spirit within us that moved us from death to life, that opened our eyes to see our sin and our need for a Savior, that applied that forgiveness to us who, by the work of that same Holy Spirit, repented and put their faith in Christ alone. All of this is by grace. Every bit of it's by grace. Remember, we've said before, the only thing you bring to the salvation equation is what? The sin that made it necessary. That's the only part of it that you bring to this equation. All the rest of it is of Christ. And you might be sitting here this morning or listening to this later, and you might be thinking, yeah, right. All this Jesus stuff is a fairy tale. It's all a fairy tale. Yeah, right. I got some good news for you. Point two, real quick. He offers an invitation to the doubting. He not only offers hope and courage and all of that to the fearful and a word of peace and grace. He also offers an invitation to the doubting. Very quickly, look at verse 24. Notice who wasn't with the rest of the disciples in the upper room. It was old Thomas. And the other disciples come and find him and say, we have seen the Lord in verse 25. And then what does Thomas do? He reacts with a feeling we know all too well. He reacts with skepticism and unbelief. And the only thing that would satisfy him was empirical evidence. Again, this points to the fact that everybody knew that Jesus died. That he actually really died. Thomas knew how lethal Roman execution was. He knew that Jesus had really died and been really buried. He had staked his life on the fact that Jesus was the Messiah and did not want to be pulled in by some hoax or hallucination. They're like, we have seen the Lord. And he's like, but I saw him die. He says, unless I see his hands... In his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. And what does he ask to see? The scars. 
the scars. Thomas would get that chance, wouldn't he? Eight days later, as we're told. We have no idea what happened with Thomas during those eight days, but as we arrive at verse 26, the previous scene almost repeats itself, doesn't it? You see the disciples once again in the locked room, but this time Thomas is with them. And once again, Jesus miraculously shows up somehow, and what does he offer? A word of peace and grace. It kind of just redoes itself all over again, except Thomas is here. And once again, Jesus shows up. He says, peace be to you. And then look at verse 27. What does Jesus do? Instead of excoriating Thomas, what does he do? He immediately invites Thomas to touch his scars and respond to the reality of his physical resurrection. Remember, Thomas had basically said, unless I see him with my own eyes and touch him with my own hands, I will never believe. That's essentially what he said. And notice what Christ asks him to do. He says, look, see me, come, touch me, see the scars. Look and touch implied in this is also the fact that Thomas heard his voice, just like Mary did, right? Mary, there was something about his voice. All of his senses are engaged at this moment as Jesus invites him in in the midst of his doubt. And he says, hear my voice and see me and touch me. I'm right here. This is hopeful news for those of you who still doubt because Christ holds out his nail-scarred hands and invites you to see and hear for yourself. Look around the room. Look around the room and see the presence of other former doubters and blasphemers and skeptics and rebels who are called, who were called and redeemed by Christ. Again, hear the words of that hymn that we heard earlier. Pensive, doubting, fearful heart, hear what Christ the Savior says. Every word should joy impart, change thy mourning into praise. Yes, he speaks and speaks to thee. May he help thee to believe, then thou presently will see thou hast little cause to grieve. We think about what's going on here. On here, What this is, is this is a call to believe and a call to echo the words of Thomas in verse 28. What does he say? My Lord and my God, either for the first time as a fellow forgetter who needs to be, or if either for the first time or as a fellow forgetter who needs to be reminded of his grace. Verse 29 says that we're at no disadvantage because we did not have a moment like Thomas. We're blessed to have been given the faith to hear and believe. This is Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. We think, oh, well, I wasn't there, so that must mean that my faith is less. No, it doesn't. We're blessed to, have been, to hear these words and to believe, and all of that is the work of the Spirit. As we hear these words, and we go from death to life. What a joy. It's, and so you think, Jesus tells us exactly why the Holy Spirit inspired him to write down this account of Jesus. Look at verse 30. It tells us that there was plenty more that he could have included. But verse 31 tells us why these past 15 months in John's gospel matter. What does John say? But these are written so that you may believe. What? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Notice, I'm almost done. That life does not come through your own striving. It comes by faith in his name, not your own. If you trust Christ, you don't need to worry about making a name for yourself because your name is already written in the Lamb's book of life. Think about how much time and effort we all spend trying to make a name for ourselves. If you're in Christ, stop. 
We are not called to make a name for ourselves for the glory of us. Our name is already written in the Lamb's book of life, and we rest in that. What this does is it sets us free to do what the shorter catechism says in question one. What is the chief end of man? Why are we here? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. How do we do that? Lots of ways. But chief among them is we take the attention off of ourselves and we put it upon Christ and say, I am a great sinner, but He is a great Savior. And we glorify Him and we rest in Him forever. And even while we continue to struggle and suffer and face life in a broken world, we're reminded of the unbreakable love of God for His people and, he, and how He walks with us. Psalm 56, verse 8. Have you kept count of my tossings and put my tears in your bottle? Are they not in your book? God knows every one of them. We're also reminded of that great day coming when all the sad things will become untrue. All those tears will be wiped away and we'll always be with the Lord. Look again at that hymn, Pensive, Doubting, Fearful Heart. These are incredibly comforting words written by a fellow struggler and sufferer. Look at what he wrote. Though afflicted, tempest-tossed, comfortless, a while thou art. Do not think thou canst be lost. Thou art graven on my heart. All thy walls I will repair. Thou shalt be re rebuilt anew, and in thee it shall appear. What a God of love can do. All the broken places rebuilt. All the hard places covered over. All, no more tears. No more crying. No more shame. No more guilt. All been wiped away in that great day of the Lord. And we will always be with the Lord. Now how do we know these things are true? How do we know? How do we know that any of this is true? We think, okay Dave, whatever. How do we know that all of this is true? What can we rest in? What can we point to? The supper set before you. The supper set before you. We remember the sign Christ left us, the Spirit, and as the bread and cup pass in a few moments, consider that he first offered these elements before his body was left scarred from the cross. But as we take them this morning, be reminded that those scars sit in heaven right now. And remember that your sin debt has been paid and now sits, sit under the words that are affixed like an embossed seal upon your letter of pardon. Which words sit like an embossed seal on your pardon? Just like a raised scar. What, is the, what are those words? It is finished. It's finished. The supper set before you. His body broken. His blood spilled for the forgiveness of sins. It's finished. It's done. We rest in Christ for those who trust in Christ, even if it feels like the worst of times, it is simultaneously the best of times because Christ has risen from the dead. And not just that, He's promised to return in glory. And we long for that day. But until that day, He said, do what? Take part in this sign and remember my death until I return. And so as we come to the table this morning... The Lord knows that we're forgetful. We need to be reminded of Christ's return. We need to, we, we're just forgetful. And so the Lord's given us this sign. And this is a good sign given to us, a good gift given to us by a loving God.